This is Neil Erwitz. I'm the Director of External Relations here at the Center for a New American Security. And we're here today to discuss a uh, report that we've just come out with called A Strategy for Ending the Syrian Civil War. It's really taking on just a small issue. Uh, we're here today with the three authors, uh, Colin Call, who is a professor at Georgetown and the former National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden, Alon Goldenberg, who's the Director of our Middle East Security Program, and Nicholas Harris who is our Basevich Fellow. So let me start with the most pointed yet broad question. Um, what makes this attempt, this recommendation different? After all, the U.S. has been at this for six years now. I would say, Neil, that fundamentally what we're doing and what we're recommending is actually looking at the situation on the ground and then trying to come to an agreement that actually comports with what's happening on the ground instead of idealistically trying to reshape into a scenario that's not going to happen. I mean, the, the fundamental premise of the report is the country right now is divided into six separate zones con of control, controlled by different parties. We have a Turkish zone, we have a zone controlled by Assad, we have a zone controlled uh, by more moderate forces in the south, we have an ISIS-held zone, an Al-Qaeda-held zone, and a zone controlled by our K Kurdish friends. And what we're saying is, first come to an agreement to end the conflicts at the edges of these different zones and the seam points, and then after you de-escalate, then you can come to some kind of a longer-term solution for Syria. So I think that that's the most important thing. It just reflects the actual realities on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think that at least three things have changed. Uh, mm -hmm. One is that the battlefield dynamics have uh, contributed to a situation in which the country has been fragmented along the lines that Alan uh, just uh, suggested. The second is is diplomatic in the sense that uh, through what's known as the Astana process, Turkey, Iran, and, and Russia have basically coordinated uh, to start to de-escalate the, uh, the conflict in a number of de-escalation, what they call de-escalation zones in four different parts of the country, one in the north, one in the center, uh, one around Damascus, and one further in the south. And the report kind of built Builds, I think, on that process that's ongoing and encourages the Trump administration to kind of lean into it and build uh, up, uh, upon it. Uh, uh, and the third is is the the change in U.S. administration here, uh, where uh, despite the 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles that Trump shot at Assad's airbase air base in early uh, April, it's clear the uh, Trump administration has no interest in basically going all in to topple Assad. Well, the 59 missiles ended the crisis, right? <laughs> yeah, for about a day. Uh, yeah. But I mean, the, the the major premise of the report is that there's kind of two wars going on in Syria. There's the war against the Islamic State, which is actually going pretty well. The uh, onslaught of Raqqa is currently underway. Uh, after that, there will be some cleaning up to do in the Euphrates River Valley, etc. But the ISIS campaign, which the United States is leading, is going pretty well. But there's this broader war, the civil war, that if it's not resolved in some way, will make any gains against extremist groups like ISIS uh, unsustainable. So this is, is there a practical, pragmatic way to wind the civil war down to make the gains against ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other extremist groups sustainable over the long run? Well, then let me kind of jump in on what this practically means and how the Trump administration can uh, follow up on tomorrow and the day after that. What is the first step to move towards this process to end the, the civil war? 
I mean, I think the first step is to is to directly uh, engage in the Astana process. Uh, for the for the most part, uh, the United States has had, if anything, just an observer status uh, in this process. Uh, we haven't been fully engaged. It's difficult to do, frankly, when you don't have a fully staffed up uh, State Department. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I think they have to get engaged in that process to lean in uh, to the de-escalation proposals that the Russians, the Turks, and the Iranians have already uh, uh, engaged in, and take this frag the fragmentation of Syria as, in essence, an opportunity. Opportunity uh, to establish a national ceasefire uh, that would uh, calm the violence across uh, the country and also put in restrictions on uh, uh, who can engage in air operations over certain areas and other things, again, building on uh, uh, the current process. So I think that's the first uh, thing uh, that they can do. Uh, the second thing that they can do, though, is they have to come up with a plan, and I think the report is helpful in this regards, to manage the conflicts at the seams of these uh, zones. Uh, and one of the biggest conflicts. Uh, uh, is the one between the Turks and the Kurds. Uh, Turkey has its own buffer zone of sorts. It's about 750 square miles in the northwestern part of the country. The United States, alongside uh, a coalition of Kurds and Arabs, has carved out an enormous swath of territory in clearing ISIS off of the uh, uh, Turkey-Syria border. Um, and so most the, the, the entirety of the Turkey-Syria uh, border is now cleared of ISIS. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that the Turks and the Kurds uh, see themselves as existential, you know, moral yeah, Now enemies. they can go mm-hmm. back to fighting. Exactly. Yep. So the Trump administration has basically followed uh, on what the Obama administration did in backing uh, Kurdish fighters uh, and the Arab tribes that are associated with them to take Raqqa. Uh, but that has created an enormous amount of anxiety in Ankara because the Turks see these Kurds as aligned with the PKK who are, in, who are insurgents and terrorists in Turkey. So figuring out a way to, to, to manage that tension so that you can keep the pressure on ISIS, but also once ISIS is defeated, you don't have a full-blown let, border war between Turks me, and Kurds. Sure. And if I could, let me ask about that because that is we would love to have a more peaceful relationship between the Turks and the Kurds how do we get that we wouldn't be the first people to want it after all so I think you know one of the one of the major sort of policy prescriptions that the report offers is that it says to the Trump administration now is the time to leverage the investment that the US has made in the counter ISIS campaign in northern and eastern Syria and to use that investment to create influence. We are going to be countering ISIS in that area of Syria for the foreseeable future. We are building a, a sort of military infrastructure in different areas in northern eastern Syria that will support that. We have a strong ability to influence the dynamics of our Kurdish partners and also of the Arabs that have agreed to work with the Kurds. And so it is the, the U.S. role through its military presence, through the fact that it is the U.S. that nurtured the Syrian Democratic Forces Coalition that has allowed the Kurds to become such a military power to actually have uh, good relations with a number of their Arab and other ethnic uh, community um, neighbors that al- and that allows us to say to them, look, we will not accept uh, a PKK presence because Turkey is going to be our partner and the Turks do not want your the territory that we're helping you to secure and to rule become a base of operations for a group they consider to be a terrorist group. And what we will offer you in return is a, a continuation of U.S. support to allow you to build up the security 
and governance structures that will protect your communities from ISIS and other organizations. And we will be there at the top level, which the U.S. has already done under the Trump administration, to de-conflict. When the Turks try to come forcefully against you, we will be there, but you have to support us on the ground by making actual steps towards distancing yourself politically from the PKK. There's 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 some there's some concrete things which I can that's in the report for people, for listeners who are interested uh, you know building on Nick's point about the leverage that we have with both parties. Essentially you have to come to a modus vivendi between the sides. Part of that is to separate them geographically in a cleaner way. It's important that the United States makes sure that all Kurdish elements are, in essence, east of the Euphrates River Valley so that Mm -hmm. they are nowhere near uh, the Turkish buffer zone. Uh, We also have to make credible commitments that we won't support an independent Turkish uh, Kurdish entity in northern Syria, which is something uh, that uh, the Turks uh, are very concerned with, nor any effort militarily by the Kurds to link what are known as the cantons, basically the different regions of northern Syria that the Kurds uh, dominate to create one unified uh, northern uh, uh, Syrian Kurdish entity across all of the uh, Turkey-Syria borders. So we have to uh, get the Kurds to commit to that. And then last but not least, you have to get the Kurds to uh, agree uh, to basically have sufficiently inclusive local governance in the areas that they've liberated, such that the Turks believe that they at least have some uh, groups that they're comfortable with operating in those uh, areas. The Turks will also have to give a few things to the Kurds. Most uh, prominent among them is if the, if the Kurds are going to agree not to establish a separate state or link their regions together, the Turks probably have to uh, give the Kurds the ability to transit across their regions through some civilian corridor. So there's only one entity that has enough uh, 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 leverage with both sides to try to broker such a modus vivendi, and that's uh, that's the United States. Well, let, sure. to, to, I guess to show just the sheer level of how complicated this is, let me ask whether Erdogan would go along with something like this? Am I, I mean, Colin, I see the look on your face, our listeners can't, that say maybe he will, maybe he won't. Is that, do we think he's going to be on board? I've spent a lot of time with Erdogan uh, on this issue uh, when advising uh, uh, Biden uh, on this. And the short answer is, my guess is Erdogan will go along with it, but you'd never know it from his body language and his actual language that he'll complain (laughs) about it uh, quite a lot. He doesn't draw any distinction between Kurdish YPG militia inside uh, Syria and their political affiliates, the PYD, and PKK terrorists operating in northern Iraq or in southeastern Turkey. He draws no distinction between the two of them. The United States government does draw a distinction between the two of them, and and he's not going to move away uh, from that. Um, Interestingly, in late April, the Turks uh, carried out uh, some pretty big airstrikes in uh, northeastern Syria and northwestern Iraq, targeting Kurdish fighters on both sides of the borders in pretty close proximity to U.S. uh, forces. And this was basically a warning shot to try to dissuade uh, the Trump administration from providing weapons uh, uh, to the Kurds for the final push on Raqqa. The Trump administration, in essence, I think, did the right thing, which was to call their bluff. Uh, Erdogan then came to the White House. He and Trump talked. Um, it was a it was a huge political win for Erdogan to be invited to the White House, especially after the referendum consolidated kind of a quasi authoritarian uh, uh, set of institutional arrangements for Erdogan in Turkey. So it was a big deal for him to be invited uh, to the White House. And I think even though he complained about our support for uh, the Kurds, uh, the the Turks have for the moment backed off uh, taking more military action. How long that lasts, I don't know. Uh, but I think there's there's some chance if the Trump uh, administration leans into it. 
you know, I wanted to weigh in just on another yeah. point, actually, because you think about it, it's not just about Turkey and the Kurds, which is a huge problem. We also have this problem with Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, and, and the way all of that plays uh, inside, in addition to the Russians. But uh, I want to talk for a minute about Iran and how we manage that particular challenge inside Syria. Uh, fundamentally, you know, with the Iranians, we have to take some what the report recommends is taking some pretty clear red lines of things that we're not going to let them do, but also at the same time engaging them, which is something that this administration is quite loath to do because you're going to have to negotiate with them. Reality is the Iranians hold a lot of the cards. They support numerous various Shia militias inside Assad-held territory. Assad is not going anywhere, and neither are many of these militias. But what we can do, at least from a pushback perspective, is a few things. First, really important for us to keep Iranian forces and you know their proxies off of the border with Jordan and Israel, which can be very destabilizing. So there's a southern area, a group called the Southern Front, which the United States has supported for a long time, along with Jordan and others. In any final agreement and any final deal, you want to make clear that that area is going to be Assad regime-free, Iranian forces-free. Uh, the other more challenging question is what to do in eastern Syria, really in the area around the Euphrates River Valley and Deir Zor. This is area that's right now held by ISIS. But there is this question of who's going to retake this area. You know, once all you hear about is Raqqa and Mosul, eventually those fall, and there's going to be a race for basically who takes this territory. And already now, we've seen twice, and again just today, uh, American forces bombing uh, and striking at combination of Assad regime and Shia militias supported by Iran um, that got too close and started essentially coming into our space and our area of operations. And so keeping this area and ensuring that it's ultimately American-supported um, actors who retake it is critical because if it's Iranian actors who retake it, there's a potential for them to then that essentially connect what you would call a land bridge all the way from the Mediterranean to Tehran. Uh, and so... This is, this is where we can potentially block that, which is something that's critical to our Gulf partners, the Israelis, and others. Um, the other thing is also reassuring our Gulf partners uh, at the same time, by which is something the administration has probably, if you ask me, done too much of uh, and gone too far in its support for the Saudis. And we're seeing some of the consequences of that with the Saudis feeling so emboldened that they can... You know, for example, try to isolate and cut out Qatar. Uh, but there is still this need to reassure them that we're going to be there by their side fighting the Iranians. One place where you can do some of that is by reassuring them that we'll push back and not allow Iran to, to gain a significant foothold in Yemen, while at the same time balancing and not getting the United States too engaged or supporting efforts, um, supporting actions that you know would really be seen as viola violations of human rights and killing civilians. So that's that is a tough balancing act to play. And let, let me yeah. pull at that thread, if I may. Um, that seems like a very tight needle to thread. Um, do we, does the U.S. and does the Trump administration have the horses in the barn right now to pull that off? Probably not, uh, sadly. I mean, I think this is the problem. At least the administration's policy thus far is not threading the needle. It's just coming down on one side very, very heavily. And it's one thing Look, I think that the Gulf states had a challenging relationship with, with President Obama for a whole number of reasons. The President President Obama, any president who cut the nuclear deal with Iran was going to face a major backlash from them. And so part of this is atmospherics, the ability to build a better relationship, good. But at some point, you also have to send a signal that we're not just becoming a participant in the middle of a sectarian conflict in the region and jumping in on one side. The president just today started tweeting out uh, American support for 
for a Saudi isolation of Qatar. That's basically taking the United States and inserting it into the middle of an intra-Arab conflict. You know, Arab diplomats I've talked to in the last couple of days, their message has been, this is not your fight. This is our problem. Let us deal with it. Fine. Why insert ourselves into the middle of that? So that's, I think, a broader question, but fun. just an example yeah. of the inability to maneuver this complicated space. But I think more fundamental is their inability or unwillingness to also engage with the Iranians. Yes, it's good to push back on Iran in some areas, and we are sure Gulf partners. But you need to leave a channel of dialogue open. Secretary Tillerson has not yet had a conversation with uh, with Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif. This was a channel that was open throughout the Obama administration. It was the first time in 35 years we had a real channel of communication. And there's nothing wrong with communicating, even if you disagree about some things and even if you're going to push back in other areas. Yeah, the other actor in this equation that the report spends a lot of time focusing on, of course, is the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Any de-escalation scheme uh, along the lines that are, is being pursued through the Astana process now and that the report argues we should build on only works if, if uh, the United States and the, and the Russians can get on the same page. Um, the United States needs the Russians to basically put pressure on Assad to, in the first instance, agree to a viable, enforceable national ceasefire rooted around these uh, uh, these various zones of control. Uh, and it would need to be done in a way that's, uh, that's more effective than the current de-escalation zones through the Astana process. Currently, uh, it's, there are pretty loose um, uh, constraints uh, basically non-existing constraints on the ability of the Syrian Air Force to fly over parts of the country and bomb any entity that they view to be terrorists. Um, This is especially problematic in a lot of areas where the moderate opposition operates alongside groups uh, like Arar al-Sham or al-Qaeda's affiliate uh, in in northwestern Syria. Um, So we need the Russians basically to get the Syrians not only to comply with the ceasefire, but to stand down and ground their air force over any area where the opposition uh, uh, operates. We also need the Russians to lean in on both the Iranians and Assad to translate any ceasefire based on these zones of control into a decentralized political settlement, which is something that uh, the uh, the report goes into uh, a bit. So we need the Russians. What can we uh, use as leverage to get the yeah. Russians to go along? Uh, there are basically two things. One, we can offer uh, counterterrorism cooperation with them with strings attached. What's so interesting is that that President Trump, in, before he was president and now as president, oftentimes talks about us needing Russia to engage in counterterrorism in Syria. We don't need the Russians at all in Syria. The counter-ISIS campaign does not hinge on the Russians at all. As long as they stay out of our way, we're doing fine. Uh, uh, But the Russians do need us uh, in Syria, in large part because... Uh, it's difficult for them to get to a political outcome that's acceptable to them without Washington being bought in. Uh, and uh, at, frankly, they they want cooperation with the United States, especially on the counterterrorism front, because it legitimizes their intervention into Syria. That's a huge card uh, that the Trump administration can play, uh, but it, it shouldn't be played. It shouldn't be given away for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if Trump is really, you know, if this is about the art of the global deal in Syria, uh, he can't give this uh, particular uh, thing away for free up front. He has to demand uh, that the Russians not only get Assad to play along along the lines I just suggested, but also that the Russians themselves uh, uh, restrain the types of air activities that have cost so many civilians their lives. So counterterrorism cooperation is one piece of leverage with Moscow. The second, honestly, is signaling uh, to the Russians that in a world where they agree 
to this de-escalation framework and a decentralized political settlement along the, uh, uh, along these lines, that the United States would work alongside the EU, the United Nations, and others to mobilize international financial resources to help rebuild Syria. The reason why this is actually quite an important piece of leverage is that estimates suggest it's going to cost north of $100 billion uh, to rebuild Syria in kind of per capita terms or, or whatever. In, in, in current dollars, that's more than the Marshall Plan. I mean, it's an enormous uh, amount of money. And without the United States, the EU, and other international actors, the Gulf, wealthy nations in Asia, et cetera, stepping up, who holds the bag? The Russians, Tehran, and Assad, and they can't afford to do any of that. So our, so we should, again, that's another piece of leverage we shouldn't give away for free, our ability to mobilize international resources. It would, however, force Trump to get out of his comfort zone because he hates the notion of nation building and everything else. And it's not about us putting billions of dollars on the table so much, but we probably have to put a little on the table and uh, uh, mobilize the rest of the international community. And frankly, it's going to be hard for Trump to do that in the context where, where he's pushing for a 30% cut in the State Department and USAID. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it is hard to imagine him doing that. It's hard to imagine. And this, to me, these are the, ultimately the two things I believe in the recommendations that we made. I think this would be a sound way forward. And I believe that there are very smart people working in the Trump administration who could push on some of these. But the two the two challenges that I think they're going to have the most difficulty dealing with ideologically, the first is a willingness to actually view the world through an incredibly gray lens instead of just pure black and white because there's so many different actors going at each other in Syria. The instinct to take yeah. sides, which the president showed again today, and which he keeps, you can't do yeah. that. No, no actor is either is pure. Right. You have to. You have to just go into it with that very eyes wide open. Our objective is to end this conflict, not to take sides with any one particular group. And the second is this question Colin just raised, which is the willingness to invest in the post. Which is the post-conflict, which is so critical, not just in the Syrian civil war, but just as critical in the ISIS fight, which where where you're also seeing them uh, underinvest significantly and not put the focus on, because that's going to matter if we want to ensure that five years from now, I mean, ISIS is just Al Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, and if we did not invest the first time, and we 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 walked away in some ways, and things came back in a much uglier way. If we walk away again, or if we don't invest again, we're just going to have Al-Qaeda in Iraq 3.0 in five years. And I'm worried that what they are doing right now is setting us on a road to that. Win the short fight, lose the long one. Well, then we will have the opportunity to discuss this for many, many years to come. Uh, I hope we don't, but... We'll see. Uh, anyhow, the report is a strategy for ending the Syrian civil war. Nick, Galan, Colin, thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.